Managing Transitions, Making the Most of Change, is a book written by a guy named William Bridges. That's funny, right? A guy named Bridges writing about transitions, how to get from one point to another. Bridges. Oh, I see. It's going to be one of those mornings, is it? It's a book about change management. It's a secular book for the marketplace, but the principles of change are still applicable. After all, friends, the gospel that we believe in, the message of the gospel, is a message of change. Chapter 3 of Bridges' book is titled, How to Get People to Let Go. Here's what he says. Before you can begin something new, you have to end what used to be. Before you can learn a new way of doing things, you have to unlearn the old way Before you can become a different kind of person, you must let go of your old identity. Beginnings depend on endings. The problem is people don't like endings. Yet change and endings go hand in hand. Change causes transition. Transition starts with an ending. If things change within an organisation, at least some people within the organisation are going to have to let go of something. Beginnings depend on endings. The problem is people don't like endings. And we don't like endings, do we? And that's because we don't like change. We don't want things to end. We don't want it to finish. We don't want to say goodbye. It's hard to do that. No one likes the closing credits. No one likes admitting that they're wrong. No one likes going to a funeral. But, we're going, but if we're going to be Christ followers, if we're going to be apprentices to the life of Jesus, we have to bring an end to what used to be so that we might do something new. If we're going to see the left hand of God and understand life from God's perspective, if we want to start seeing God at work among us, behind the scenes and in the messy details, then we need to unlearn old ways so that we can learn new ways of doing things. And this morning, friends, it's coming to an end. We're at the end of our series on Genesis 37 to 50, a series called The Left Hand of God. It's been a series filled with endings and beginnings. But now we are definitely at the end, not just at the end of Jacob's life, but at the end of Joseph's life as well. No one likes going to funerals, but today we are witnessing two of them. But we're also at the end of the book of Genesis, a journey that we started out on together three years ago. A book at the beginning of the Bible has brought about a few endings amongst us too, hasn't it? It's been quite the ride. Maybe we should do Revelation next. Genesis started in Eden, but today it ends in Egypt. And throughout it all, we've been following God's promises. Promises made first to Abraham. Would you see them again with me? Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What God promises Abraham is a new beginning. It is the promise to the end of all of Eden's prevailing evil. But from that first moment until this one, there's been false starts and abrupt endings. God's promises have potentially looked very promising only to appear immediately perilous. God's keeping his promises to his people who are continually taking matters into their own hands. We've been on the edge of collapse and back from the brink of disaster countless times now. 
repeatedly, generations of Abraham's offspring, repeatedly making the same mistakes. The repeated and repetitive patterns of lust and sexual impulse and grief and loss and desperation have all been present in this story from the get-go. It's been a complicated web of lies and deception, a sordid, moral, wicked, hypocritical mess. But now it's coming to an end. Well, at least the book of Genesis is ending. Jacob is coming to an end. Joseph is coming to an end also. But God's faithfulness to a people of faithlessness, these are the generations of Jacob, is really only just beginning. A new beginning depends on endings. But the story of Israel isn't ending. The story of God's promising, promises aren't ending either. And now we're at the end of his life, as Jacob's story now draws to a close, a life that's been filled with lies and deception, a life of grabbing and grasping and grappling. Nothing's really changed. It's the same old Jacob. Why don't you see it with me? Chapter 48, verse 3. 48, verse 3. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Jacob, gravely ill, now calls his favourite son to him and Joseph and his two sons now stand before a dying Jacob. Jacob musters up all the energy that he has left and sits up on his deathbed to talk to his son Joseph. Jacob starts talking about blessing and he picks up the language again of Eden fruitful and multiply, language that goes all the way back to the garden. Remember, God's promises are generational. But does this scene here now with Jacob, does it remind you of anything? We've clearly seen this before, history repeating itself again. But if you're not quite sure or you're still not yet convinced, chapter 48 verse 10 even tells us that Jacob's eyes are now dim. Are you with me? Just as Jacob deceived his father Isaac and stole Esau's blessing out from under Isaac's nose, now two more sons, sons stand before a dying patriarch who is old and sick and half-blind and motivated by his stomach. Having already stolen his brother's blessings from him, Jacob now steals his son's own sons out from under him. See it with me, won't you? Chapter 48, verse 5. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are and the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now you wouldn't give Jacob a blue card anytime soon now would you? Granddad raising his own grandchildren as if they were his own children. Joseph's two sons have just become his brothers. But while this story has all the makings of yet another classic Jacob story, the issue here isn't about child abduction. It's about favouritism. God's giving his favourite son Joseph a double portion of the promised inheritance. That's what's happening here. Making Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, on par with Jacob's own sons, Reuben and Simeon. A double portion of the promised inheritance, the firstborn's blessing, belonged to Reuben. But now Joseph, not Reuben, receives the blessing. Jacob is making his favourite son his firstborn. 
Jacob has mixed up the order of the blessings again. But that's not the only mix-up that Jacob makes. Jacob, whose eyes are now dim, asks who it is that now stands before him. And while Jacob's eyes don't work very well, surely his memory and yours does still. Joseph introduces his two sons to Jacob and Jacob blesses Joseph's sons as his very own. But there's another mix-up. Instead of placing his right hand on Manasseh to receive the blessing of the firstborn son, Jacob places his right hand on Ephraim and blesses him with the firstborn's inheritance instead. History repeating itself yet again. The blessing of the oldest son is now being given to the youngest son instead. Hear Jacob's blessing, won't you? Chapter 48, verse 15. The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Jacob purposely crosses his hands over, and Joseph is mighty cross about it. But this isn't simply a senior's moment, friends, because the generational promises of Abraham have the same generational remix to them. Remember, not Ishmael, but Isaac. Not Esau, but Jacob. Not Reuben, but Joseph. Not Manasseh, but Ephraim. Jacob, whose name means supplanter, is deliberately playing twister with God's blessings again. Classic Jacob. But now, close to his own death, Jacob gathers his sons to bless them. Each of the blessings of Jacob's sons are unique, reflecting something of the son's past and projecting something of the future for their descendants. Now, we're not going to look at all 12 of the blessings this morning, you'll be pleased to know, but I do want to draw your attention to three of them. And the first is Reuben. Reuben is the firstborn son of Jacob and Leah. Here's what Jacob says about his inheritance, chapter 49, verse 2. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. If you're not exactly sure what the backstory is here, I'm not going to tell you, but you can catch all the details for yourself again in Genesis 35. But if you've ever watched Seinfeld, this feels a little bit like Festivus, doesn't it? It's the airing now of family grievances. Reuben's mistake has cost him his inheritance. His character, says Jacob, is as weak as water. It's not that Jacob simply names Joseph's sons Ephraim and Manasseh in his will now, making them equal to his sons Reuben and Simeon. It's that he is altogether replacing them. Reuben and Simeon cut out of the inheritance. And with Levi now set to join the priesthood... That leaves Judah in line for succession, chapter 49, verse 8. See it with me. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until, tri until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So far, 
royalty has belonged exclusively to Joseph. Joseph's brothers bow down before him. But royalty will be given to Judah's offspring. The Lion of Judah will defeat all their enemies. The ruling scepter shall never depart from the tribe of Judah. A descendant of Judah will reign forever over Israel. The obedience of the people shall be his. The nations shall come and bring tribute to him. And while the other sons of Jacob are also blessed, Zebulun gets the beach house, Dan judges his people, Gad loses to the raiders each week, Asher eats rich food and royal foods, and Benjamin is hungry like the wolf. Listen to what Jacob says to Joseph. In spite of his brother's rejection and hostility towards him, Joseph's survival was sustained by God. See how God's described? God is the mighty one of Jacob, God the stone of Israel. Unmoved in the midst of opposition and diversity, Joseph remained faithful. And so Jacob now prays for Joseph's sons, chapter 49, verse 25. By the God of your fathers who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with the blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast of the womb, the blessings of your father, um, father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of everlasting life. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set, who was set apart from his brothers. Remember, these blessings belong to the descendants now of Joseph, not the, not the ones that Jacob has taken for himself. And for the descendants of Joseph, it will be blessing upon blessing, says Jacob. Joseph is set to receive the double portion. Because Joseph was set apart by his brothers, the descendants of Joseph will receive blessings, blessings that exceed the promised blessings that were given to Abraham. The blessings promised to Abraham and Isaac are just the beginning of all that is still to come for them. You see, Reuben was as unstable as water, but Joseph remained unmoved by evil. After the blessings of his 12 sons, Jacob now moves and provides towards giving them his final instructions. But wisely, Jacob has planned ahead. He's even organised and arranged his own funeral. See it with me, won't you? Chapter 49, verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me in my, with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abram bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. In verse 33 of chapter 49, we're told that Jacob is dead. And while you might think that's the end of the story, friends, this is just the beginning. When it comes to the story of God's people, death is never the end for us. Jacob's instructions are to return home, back to the promised land, back with the people of the promise. The descendants of Jacob might live in Egypt, but Jacob is about to be buried back in the land of Canaan, buried in the field brought by Abraham. The cave at Machpelah, friends, is also known as Bethlehem. Bought by Abraham as a burial plot for Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. 
It is the final resting place of the patriarchs and it just so happens to be the birthplace of the Messiah. Endings are just new beginnings. New beginnings depend on endings. And at Jacob's death, Joseph now takes charge. After all, they're still in Egypt. But notice how Jacob is prepared for burial, won't you? Chapter 50, verse 2. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. That's Jacob. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. The Egyptians embalmed Jacob's body. The father of Israel is being prepared for burial like a mummy. After 40 days of embalming his body, I reckon Jacob would have looked a little bit like Keith Richards. Now no longer walking like an Egyptian, Jacob's going to be buried like one. And so they mourn Israel in Egypt for 70 days. It's a state funeral that is reserved for pharaohs. Only Jacob won't be buried in the valley of the king's willy, but in the land that was promised to Abraham. Jacob's Jacob's send-off will require Pharaoh to send them off. And so Joseph asks for permission from Pharaoh to bury Jacob in accordance with his instructions. And Pharaoh tells Jacob to go. And we get our first glimpse at the Exodus. You see, endings, the ending of Jacob's life hints towards the future, a new beginning for Israel's children. And so Joseph goes up out of Egypt to bury Israel. But look who goes with him. Chapter 50, verse 7. All the servants of Pharaoh, all the elders of Joseph's household, all the elders of Egypt. Verse 8. All the household of Joseph, all of his brothers, all, of his ho- all the household of Israel. Along with chariots and horsemen of Egypt, we're told there that this was a very great company who leave Egypt. Beyond the Jordan River, another seven days of mourning, it's a funeral and a procession, friends, that lasted more than 77 days. But make no mistake here, the Egyptians are still firmly in control of Israel. Not only did Israel leave its livestock and children behind, left in Egypt as surety, but when the Canaanites saw this funeral procession, they thought it was the Egyptians who were mourning. And so they called the place Abel Mizraim, In Hebrew, Abel means mourning, Mizraim means Egypt. Abel Mizraim means, or translates as, mourning Egyptians. After Israel's sons followed Jacob's instructions, they all return now back to Egypt. But it's kind of hard to know, I think, if this next bit was also part of Jacob's final instructions or not. I mean, I know they've said that we are honest men, but this still feels a little bit, well self-motivated chapter 50 verse 15 when joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead they said it may be that joseph will hate us and pay us back all the evil that we did to him so they sent a message to joseph saying your father gave this command before he died say to joseph please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you I guess it's hard to say really, genuine or insincere, you be the judge. Either way, Joseph's in tears again as his brothers now bow down before him, asking for forgiveness. 
Listen, friends, if you haven't seen it in this series yet, if you've not seen the left hand of God in Joseph's life, God at work in the details, behind the scenes and in the messiness of life itself, using all the difficult and hard and uncertain times to ultimately bring about his own plans and purposes, God doing a deeper work in us in order to do a deeper work through us, then won't you look with me now, please, at chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Looking back, we get a glimpse of our future. Despite all the evil that's been done to Joseph, the sins and transgressions committed against him, comfort, forgiveness and provision are now on offer to those who failed him. Joseph says, do not be afraid. Looking back, Joseph can see the goodness of God. Despite all the suffering of his own life, the heartache and the rejection that he's endured, although they intended evil by rejecting him, God used Joseph's life to save his brothers. Looking back, Joseph can see God's perfect plan. Friends, that is the left hand of God. Can you see it? We might now be at the end of Joseph's life, but death is just the beginning of our hope. Hope that Israel will one day leave Egypt permanently and return home to receive their promised inheritance. And the hope of our inheritance is the same. John chapter 1, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Just as Joseph was rejected by his brothers, so Jesus was rejected by his very own people. Their intention against Jesus in his death on the cross was evil. But God meant it for good and for our salvation. You see, that's the left hand of God. Everyone who receives and believes in Jesus, God takes them and now makes them his very own children. Even when we're as unstable as water, hard times now won't move us from his love. The evil things that happen to us, the bad things that happen, the uncertain things, God uses to bring about his good in us and for the sake of others. And so as you look back over your own life now, Can you now see the left hand of God? We are so enamoured of living in our current life that we forget to understand that there's more going on. We live situationally, but God calls us to live sovereignly. We need to see life from his point of view rather than seeing it from our own analysis. There's always more going on than what we can see. Friends, that is the left hand of God. 
and the new thing that we need to do, the old thing that we need to forget, the new thing that we need to start doing, is seeing life from God's perspective. Will you pray with me? Joseph's reaction to his brothers is nothing short of miraculous. To offer forgiveness to those who have caused evil against us, who've transgressed against us, who've wronged us at every point, who've lied and manipulated us, to offer them forgiveness. Well, it's baffling. And yet, Lord Jesus, that's how you treat us. Not only that, you make us your children and you give us hope for the future, the certainty and the surety of our inheritance. Lord, would you help us to be a people who no longer just view our life from this moment and from this perspective, but to be caught up in the grander, greater picture of the things that you are doing, your sovereign plan, your work, bringing about your purposes and your glory. Give us eyes to see the big picture. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see life from your perspective rather than just from our own analysis. Would you help us to see the left hand of God? Would you help us to see you at work amongst us? The bigger, grander picture that you're doing rather than the small little interactions that we get caught up in. Give us eyes to see. Lift our gaze, Lord Jesus to set our mind and our heart on things above and to see your good works at work amongst us now. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.